The reading of the scriptures from Revelation chapter 12. Uh, your bulletin uh, indicates verses 1 to 12, but uh, Ronnie has asked that I read the entire chapter, and so I will. Uh, and I invite your uh, reverent uh, and uh, faithful hearing of God's word uh, from Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, and to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a, a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I would like to do two things this morning. I have two goals, if you will. The first is uh, to give you encouragement to study the book of Revelation. And then secondarily, of course, from our text, to see us all notice the effects of Christ's death and resurrection, particularly uh, the spiritual effects of that. And so first, and just briefly, let me give you some encouragement to study the book of Revelation. So 
Come back to the first chapter for just a moment, and we want to see how the book itself is introduced. First of all, in chapter 1 and verse 3, we see, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear, the words of the prophecy, and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. God pronounces in this unique way, in all of the Bible, a blessing upon the reading, which was originally public reading, and the hearing and the keeping of the things written in the book. And he didn't start the book out by saying, now you're never going to get this, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but some people approach the book that way, and I think maybe um, it's the way in which they approach it, and I'd like to maybe help with that if I can. The time is near, he says to John, and all of the things he's going to reveal. It's important to remember when you're studying a book like this that it is apocalyptic literature. It is a form of literature that uses, uh, like the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, and a little bit in the book of Zechariah, it uses themes and visions and uh, pictures of things to represent the spiritual realities of those things. Certain themes are are significant in the book of Revelation, and they are repeated over and over, and the repetition is meant to instruct us. For instance, chapter 1, if you're still there, in verse 1 says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which much, must shortly take place, and he sent and he signified or communicated it by his angel to John." He signified it, if you will, he signified it, giving John signs to represent the realities of the book itself. So apocalypse, the word that we use in English, comes from a Greek word that means not to conceal, but to reveal. So at the very beginning of the book, we have these encouragements, a blessing to read and to hear and to keep the things. That's an encouragement from God himself. We have the book is an, a revealing of things, not a concealing of things. And we are encouraged right from the start that the time is at hand. And so that heightens our uh, awareness of these things that are found in this book, right? The whole book itself is a series of parallel visions. It's not a strictly chronological book, and it cannot be read that way with understanding. Revelation, like Daniel often introduces a subject or a theme in one area of the book and then later on comes back and repeats that same subject or theme in greater detail. So we can't see it in linear fashion. This happens, then this is the next, and this is the next, and this is the next chronologically. The book is not written that way. In fact, the second coming of Christ is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. Chapters 7, 11... 14, 16, twice in chapter 19, and then also in chapter 20. Now, there's obviously not going to be but one second coming of Christ, not seven. So what we're doing is we're seeing a recapitulation of the return of Christ shown in different light or greater detail in each of these sections. They're repeating again for us. Also, it's no doubt that you've heard of the fall of Babylon and mentioned in the book of Revelation. If you've read it recently, it would be uh, first and foremost in your mind to understand what that is. Well, chapters 14, uh, 16, 17, 18, and 19 talk about a, the fall of Babylon. 
It's not talking about sequential events and multiple falls of Babylon, but it's talking about the same event of judgment. And it's recapitulating and going over it again. No doubt you're familiar with the phrase three and a half years, also listed in, in other places in chapters 12, 13, and 14 as uh, 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time, all referring to the same time period. That's not indicating for us that repetition in those chapters, it's not indicating or suggesting that those chapters follow one, each other, one another in chronological order, but rather they refer to the same events. Okay? Now, these are important foundations, if you will. These are important uh, understandings as we approach chapter 12 for us to be able to understand it and as we approach the whole book. And I hope that that brief um, encouragement will will uh, cause you to study the book of Revelation on your own. Now, second and foremost, we want to look in chapter 12 and understand the spiritual conflict between the church and Satan and the result of uh, the, the resurrection of Christ, the heavenly result uh, of the as a result of the death and resurrection of Christ. What's the basic structure of chapter 12? You always have to do a little digging before you find the precious jewel. And so let's do a little digging. What's the structure of chapter 12? Well, there are three major sections. And if you want to write them down, that's great. And if you have the type of memory that I don't have and you can remember everything, then here we go. Verses 1 to 6 show us God protecting Messiah and His people against Satan. Then we have in verses 7 to 12, the results of Christ's death and resurrection. Then in verses 13 through 17, we see God protecting the church against the devil's wrath. Now you've probably already put this together by just hearing it. Verses 1 to 6, God protecting Messiah and his people from Satan. And verses 13 to 17, God protecting the church against Satan. They are parallel sections. Verses 1 to 6 introduce us to that idea in brief form, where verses 13 to 17 expound on that idea. That's the form of literature that we're in. While sandwiched right in the middle, verses 7 to 12 are the core of the vision and the interpretation of the vision for us. So on one side, like a bookend, is God protecting Messiah and His people. On the other side, like a bookend, is God protecting the church and, and, and uh, against the wrath of Satan. And sandwiched in the middle is the interpretation of the vision so that we might understand the spiritual battle. That's the way the chapter lays out. Now, it's critical for us to understand that chapter 12 depicts for us the destiny of believers during this present age. Not at some far, far distant time. What did the angel say to John? That the time is at hand. The time is at hand. These things you will see in the very near future. And so it's critical to understand that it's right now that we're talking about. When we're in Revelation chapter 12, looking at the results of the death and the resurrection of Christ, we're talking about now. So... What are the signs that we're given? What is the vision? Well, there's two signs. If you notice verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven. Then verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Two great heavenly signs introduce us to the first two main characters of this vision. Who are they? 
The first is the woman. Let's look in verses 1 and 2. The great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Who is this woman? This woman represents the true covenant community, the genuine people of God versus anything that might be external only. And it does not represent Mary, though some have interpreted that way. We certainly would not ourselves, but many have interpreted that as Mary because, after all, she was the earthly mother of our Lord. But it's not Mary. She is a part of the whole Old Testament community of saints. But the, the text and the context of this chapter does not bear out that the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and the crown of stars on her head is, in fact, Mary but it represents the whole community of saints. And I'm going to prove that from Revelation in just a moment. It's also not national or physical Israel. Because as you remember from the Old Testament, it was only a remnant within national Israel that were truly uh, uh, God's chosen people. And so while there, there are certainly draws from the Old Testament community of saints here, and the, the crown of 12 stars, and draws from the New Testament apostles, which have, were 12 tribes in Israel, 12 apostles. You see not Mary and not national Israel only, but the whole community of saints in a glorious way, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of victory. That's what the word means. Not just a pretty sparkly crown, although it's glorious, but a crown that's a victory wreath is on her head. Who is this woman? Let me show you what I'm talking about from the book of Revelation itself. Back up one chapter to chapter 11, and let's look at verse number 1. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple or sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it. This woman, light-bearing woman, is the temple or sanctuary of God. Now, you know from the rest of the New Testament, I won't take the time to, to go outside of the book of Revelation right now, but the church is called the temple of the Lord, the temple of God. We are the sanctuary. God said, I will be with them and I will dwell in them. The Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. We are, as a community made up of individuals who are regenerated, the temple of the living God. And throughout the book of Revelation, as you study it, you'll see that imagery. In fact, not only are we called the temple, and is that the woman in our chapter 12, the temple, but it, she is also the bride of the Lamb. Look in chapter 19. Chapter 19, uh, verse, verses 7 and 8. Here, the woman, same woman, representing the community of the people of God, the true believers, is called the bride of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Notice how she's dressed. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Here's the bride of Christ pictured as a woman with that is a bride adorned for her husband and how she adorned beautiful, pure, 
spotless, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament, because Christ presents to himself and his people a bride who is without spot or blemish or any such thing. Christ presents to himself only the purest of brides because he has purified her. And that's a picture of the same as we're seeing um, in chapter 12. Also, the woman in chapter 12 that we're identifying as a covenant community is the new Jerusalem, chapter 21 of book of Revelation. Chapter 21 and verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as what? A bride adorned for her husband. You say, wait, is it a city or is it a bride? Yes, <laughs> is the answer. Okay? Visionary form. All right, now look farther down and we'll get the explanation. Verses 9 to 11. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And notice what he saw. Okay, John's going to see the bride. Notice what he saw. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You, believer, and me are the new Jerusalem. The community of believers in this age are the bride of Christ. We are the temple of God. And so coming back to Revelation chapter 12, we're introduced to this first great character in the vision. It's the woman. And imagine someone who's clothed with the sun, radiant beauty, the awe-inspiring beauty of the woman clothed in the sun that represents the church of both the Old and the New Testament. Chapter, uh, verse 1, that is, of chapter 12, talks about the victory wreath that is on her head and the 12 stars representing, as I already said, both the old and the new covenant community. So she's about to give birth, we see, in the vision, and in verse 5 it says that she does. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, it's obvious reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? In verse 5, he who is to rule, and the, and the, and the, the, the uh, grammar there is he who is about, just about to begin ruling. And you see in verse 5, in very condensed fashion, almost so short that you, it leaves you wanting more. Ah, that's the way John wrote the revelation here. But you see in so condensed fashion that while the devil was preparing to devour the child as soon as he was born, the child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And we're going to say a lot more about that in just a moment. But it's an obvious reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. It represents his life, his ministry, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection and ascension up to the throne. So as a result of that, we're going to see a lot of things happening. The main character is the woman... And uh, she gives birth, and now we need to introduce the next great character, and that's in verse 3, the great red dragon. Here's a great red dragon who is shown, we're given some details in verse 9 about who that dragon is. Remember verses 7 to 12 are the interpretive section. So verses nine, verse 9, that is, says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, or the ancient serpent of Eden it's referring to, who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. The devil and Satan are another way of saying slanderer or accuser, deceiver. 
He who deceived our first parents in the garden. He who accuses the brethren before God. In fact, that's a method. We're not ignorant of the devil's devices because God has revealed it to us. And it says, we won't turn there, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that Satan uses false miracles, he uses deception, he uses lies among the unbelieving uh, peoples of the world to deter them and deter them and to continue them in their blindness away from the Lord. In fact, let's look in John chapter 8 and verse 44 to see our Lord's own commentary on the wiles of the devil. John 8 and verse 44, as Jesus spoke to Jews who were trusting in their natural physical lineage to gain them access to heaven, he rebukes them and he calls them sons of the devil. And he says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was what? A murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus exposes the devil for all that he is, a liar and father of lies. And we know his methods. So we're coming back to verse 12, uh, chapter 12 of Revelation now, and we notice that the dragon is uh, has seven heads and ten horns, and on those ten horns were seven diadems. As to the meaning of those things, for time's sake, I'm just going to tell you what I believe they mean and pass over them. Um, and it's after study, of course, that I'll tell you what they mean, and I'll be glad to visit with you. Uh, at any time about it. But the seven heads represent ungodly kingdoms of this world, and the crowns, uh, or the horns that is, I'm sorry, represent the rulers of those kingdoms. So you have ungodly kingdoms like Daniel saw in, in the, the beast, the four great beasts, remember, rising up out of the sea. They represented in that vision the world kingdoms that would be from Daniel's time until the arrival of Messiah and in many forms would continue on as we live today until the return of Christ. And so what we're seeing in the seven heads, meaning the ungodly earthly kingdoms, and the ten horns is the rulers of those kingdoms or the leadership, when the crowns that are on their heads representing uh, a false claim to deity, actually, uh, rather than a victory wreath like the woman has. They claim falsely that they are God. And what does Antichrist of the last days do but claim that he himself is God, claiming that deity? And so we understand that. But I pass over that for now, wishing I had a little bit more time to delve into that. Maybe there will be a part two to this. I don't know, Lord willing. Um, but you see that the dragon is sweeping or dragging, the word is, a third of the stars from heaven in his tail. Now this represents the the corruption by the devil of the professing false ministers in the church, uh, of the professing church, the church with the large C. And it's a, it's a, a famous tactic of the devil and a very harmful one by, might I say, to drag and tempt the, the false ministers from the gospel to fall as stars fall from the heavens and to, uh, to tarnish the image of Christ through trying to tarnish the image of the church. But I pass over that, as I said, for now. Now, what does the great red dragon do? Verse 4, it, it, uh, he, he's wet, ready to give, to devour the child as soon as he is born, but something happens, doesn't it? He attempts to destroy Jesus, Messiah, just after the time of his birth, 
Yet verse 5 tells us that he's not able to do that because the child was caught up to God and to his throne. He's not able to, to destroy, although every attempt was made. And in that brief sentence, we see that, that Christ was, the, the child, that is, was caught up to God in his throne. We see the sinless life and sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ all in one shot. But there's much more that we're going to see, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. Summing that up, though, in very brief form, the woman is the covenant community, both Old Testament and New Testament. That's who she represents. She's the light-bearing woman. And the dragon is none other than Satan himself. So what God is doing in this vision is he's pulling back the veil, the curtain between what our eyes can see and all of the spiritual realities. And he's saying here, here is what is at play. Next, we're introduced to the third great character of this vision and of the heavenly vision, and that is to Messiah. As I said, verses 7 to 12 are the interpretation of the vision, and they show the effects Christ's death and resurrection. Verse 10 says, Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Notice what it says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Now. Now. Something wasn't true before in the, in the fullest sense. But now there's a great voice in heaven of all of the saints in heaven rejoicing. And that's why it's a loud voice. It sounds like an ocean crashing to the shore, the, the way the other places in Revelation describe it. A roar, if you will, of many, many voices that cannot be counted. You can just imagine if you stood by the ocean hearing that, that, you know, that just that roar of many voices lifting up in heaven and rejoicing. And what are they saying? They're saying, now, what has happened? The salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ have come. Because what verse 5 told us was that child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron was caught up to God and to His throne. He has assumed His kingship. It's showing us in condensed form the, the results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His enthronement in heaven. Verse 10 shows us the full effects of what verse 5 only hinted at. And as Christ is exalted, Satan himself loses a place of privilege that he had been granted. Notice that the, when Christ is raised to assume his throne in verses 7 and following, it creates a war in heaven. Have you ever thought of that? Look at verses 7 and following, and there was war in heaven. Who's the war between? Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. There's a great battle scene in front of us in this vision. Something, and that something is the resurrection and enthronement of Christ, caused Michael and his angels to wage war against the devil and his angels. And when Michael waged the war, the devil and his angels waged war back. And the battle is set. But notice what it says. And the dragon, uh, and they were not strong enough, in verse 8 that is, the dragon and his angels were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. Here's where it gets exciting. Christ's resurrection caused 
something drastic to change in heaven. It's called for us here a war. What does it mean in verse 8 that there was no longer a place found for the devil and his angels? Well, let's look at a couple of places. Uh, and as we're looking, coming back to Job, the first chapter, I will say to you that prior to the resurrection and, and enthronement of Christ, the devil was given certain access in the heavenlies in order that he might appear before God and accuse the saints. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about in the earth and walking around in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. A blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, listen to this, it's an accusation. The accuser is going to speak. Does Job fear God for nothing? Accusation. Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. He stood before the Lord in a place that God granted him to accuse one of the believers, the saints of God. Come now to uh, Zechariah, uh, just before, beginning in the New Testament, just before Alakai, and I want you to look in chapter 3. And here in, in a series of visions, we also see represented for us Joshua, the high priest, who would ultimately represent the ideal Israel, which is Christ, the branch. But notice in chapter 3 of Zechariah, in verse 1, it says, Then he, the angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Notice this, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan was granted prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus a privileged place, privileged in the, not in the positive sense, but God granted. God Almighty can grant what He chooses and had chosen to grant a place of access for Satan to accuse uh, the brethren before him. But now what my point is that something drastically has changed. The resurrection and ascension of Christ to His earthly throne caused a war in heaven. And Michael waged war against the devil and his privileged place of accusation against the saints. And the devil waged war back, but he was not strong enough, and he was cast out from his place of accusing the brethren. He lost his ability or his right to tell and accuse before the Lord that the people that you're loving and you're saving, they're sinners. They, they deserve your wrath. They're not worthy to enter into your presence. And you know what? In a, in a sense, the devil's right. I'm not worthy. I'm in myself not righteous. I am not prepared in any way, nor could I be to stand in the presence of a holy God. And so that accusation went forward. Guilty, 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 accusing us day and night. Look at verse number 10, the last part. He's the accuser who accuses them before our God day and night. 
But when Christ was ascended to the throne on high, he, if you will, he pulled the rug right out from under the devil and the devil lost his privileged place of accusing us. Now, he has no basis for accusing us. Let's look in Romans chapter 5 and we'll see from the New Testament a few places where we might rejoice together in what the, the effects of the resurrection of our Lord and how he has thrown down the devil and what it means. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. It says that God demonstrates his love, his own love, and that's a unique type of love because the, the context is that, you know, you know, self-sacrificial love is rare. Giving to the, the point of giving one's life is extremely rare. But God demonstrates His own unique type of love, it says in verse 8, toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why the devil's right about calling me a sinner. And I agree. But that's not the end of the story for me. There's more to the story. We go on, verse 9 in, in Romans chapter 5. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, verse 9, much more then after Christ died for us, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Justified while we were enemies by the blood of Christ. All of Satan's foundation of accusation is crumbling underneath his feet because Christ justified us by his blood, gave us a right standing with God. And so you see the foot underneath Satan's foundation of accusing the brethren beginning to crumble. Not only does he no longer have a basis for accusing us, but he lost his power to enslave us through fear of death. Come to Hebrews and uh, chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, we find in verses 14 and 15 that the devil can no longer enslave us through the fear of death as a result of the death and resurrection of Christ. Since then the children share in flesh and blood he himself, that's Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil had the power of death, but he rend, Christ rendered him powerless. That and might deliver, verse 15, those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Because the devil would accuse us, rightfully so, of being undone and unworthy. And we are, we are in ourselves. And yet, through the death and resurrection of Christ, by being covered by the blood and made given right standing with God, the foundation of Satan's accusing us is crumbling under his feet, in fact, has crumbled. He no longer has the, the right to accuse us because in Christ we are not undone, we are not unholy, we are not unrighteous, right? We're covered with the blood of Christ who is all holy and righteous and good. And the devil lost his power over us in the power of the devil is fear. And I might just add a little caveat right now because we're coming out of a year when there was so much fear in the world through the pandemic and, and through all of the things that were going on. It can shake you a little bit and it can stir you. Don't let, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't let the fear of the devil control your life and your thinking. 
The accuser of the brethren uses that tactic, but we have overcome him through the blood of the Lamb, through the righteousness of Christ. And Christ has rendered him powerless. He took the teeth from the beast. (laughs) He pulled the teeth, and the beast may roar, but the beast has no bite. When I was working for uh, AT&T one time, I was, we, we, I didn't do things related to houses or, but we had an ice storm in 2009 maybe. And so they pulled all of us technicians company wide in and said, okay, you're on storm duty. You're fixing stuff that's broken. And so we were going to houses. And so they instructed me, Ron, when you go to a house and you knock on the door, nobody's there. You can't identify yourself. You've got to get to the back, rattle that gate, knock on that gate, shout out, Hey, ho there, anybody there? Because they may have a, a, a mean dog, you know? And so, okay, so I did that. I did all that. No response. Silence. So I went back there to do what I was there to do. And when I came around the corner, there was a pit bull and he had bared his teeth and he was growling in a very low growl. And I thought, here I come, Lord. (laughs) This is it. (laughs) Those are the dangerous ones, the quiet ones. He had those teeth bare. Well, the devil bears those teeth, but Christ in his death and resurrection has rendered him absolutely powerless. There is no fear in what the devil might do to us because Christ has given us the victory. Satan is cut off from his place of accusing the brethren. There's no less than five times in chapter 12 where it talks about the devil being thrown down. Thrown down. He wasn't asked politely to leave. The resurrection of Christ and the enthronement of Christ in heaven caused a war and the devil and his angels lost the war and he was thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. It's very, very exciting for us. And that's why in verse number 10, there's a loud voice in heaven. There's rejoicing. And verses 10 to 12, by the way, are structured as a hymn. We sang a hymn this morning and we're going to sing another Verses 10 to 12 is a heavenly chorus of rejoicing of all the people in heaven raising up their voices and singing a hymn to God. And they say, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And as a result of that, the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. No place for him any longer. And they're rejoicing. Notice verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Can you imagine being there to see that very thing? We're given the vision here. But could you imagine seeing that? Christ ascending, the devil thrown down, and his angels thrown down. Well, it means something for us today too, doesn't it? In verse number 12, it says, Rejoice those who are in, he- those who are in heaven. And, but it says, Woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. Remember I began this by, by helping you to understand that we're talking about now. We're not talking about... This is not talking about the fall of the devil at the beginning of time. This is not talking about something that's going to happen in the far distant future. This happened at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We're living in the time now when the devil has come down to this world knowing that he has a short time. He's been cast out. And he knows that he has a short time, and so he persecutes the church. We read the verses. Verse 12, the last part says, He has great wrath, knowing he has a short time. Verse 13, And when he saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman... And that's the covenant community. That's, 
That represented the Old Testament covenant community. And certainly in verse 17, we see again that the community or the woman represents those. Go ahead and look at verse 17 that keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you and that's me, believer in Jesus Christ. That's you. So how do we overcome? Maybe wrapping it up earlier than I would like, but I, I think that what needs to be said has said, how do we overcome? We overcome, as verse 11 says, by the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and then we love not our lives, even to death. There's evidence of the new birth in the community of saints that we love not our lives, even unto death. Willing, if God should so choose, to even pass through uh, death of a martyr, to be willing to yield up our property and our very lives, if need be, if God would ask, because those are nothing to us. The most important thing has been done for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And He has given us a victory. And the victory is sure. And there are battles, yes. There is a war waging on earth, yes. But the good news is the accuser of our brethren has no standing any longer. And He has been thrown down out of heaven. And we rejoice in that. The victory is already ours. The accuser is silent and can accuse us no longer. So, church, I encourage you to study the book of Revelation, and I encourage you to live in light of that victory, the victory which is ours in Christ. And I encourage you to live as one born again from death to sin, and one who is not bound nor controlled by fear, one who lives and walks in the light, and rejoices every day that we are named under the name of Jesus Christ.